today on Ag News Daily. And what the, the Chinese have committed to, you know, it can only help the price of uh, soybeans, which we all, everybody in, in agriculture can use the commodities lift. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Another Ag News Daily podcast joined by Delaney Howell and Mike Pearson. Mike, we are continuing the trade news again today, aren't we? We are, Delaney. I was going to kick it off with that earlier today. I was out recording with Max Armstrong this week's edition of This Week in Agribusiness. And just as soon as we finished taping, it was announced that the Senate has voted to pass... USMCA, they now send it down to President Trump's desk. The vote was 89 to 10. I don't yet see who the holdout was. The uh, the one person must have voted present or wasn't in the office. I don't know who that was. But, um, yeah, 89 to 10, substantial victory for the USMCA. Now it's going to kick be kicked over to the president's desk, and this will be done, got done in the nick of time since the uh, – Oh, gosh, what's the other thing? Impeachment thing was delivered earlier today. I think Canada still has to sign off on this agreement, too, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah, you might be right about that. But the good news is it's out of our Senate. So now impeachment can, you know, do whatever it's going to do in the Senate. It won't be impacting uh, USMCA. Yeah, two of the no votes. I just thought this was interesting. AgriPulse reported uh, specifically those people that are running for the Democratic nominee included how they voted on the USMCA agreement and uh, the burn voted no against USMCA as well as minority Senate leader Charles Schumer. Mm. Uh, So I don't know who the other eight votes were that voted no, but uh, President Trump is expected to sign it next week. They're going to put together another, probably not quite as big, I wouldn't think, as the U.S.-China trade signing, but another big kind of pomp and circumstance grand ceremony next week for him to sign that implementing bill. Yes, that will get done. And, you know, not surprising that uh, Bernie Sanders voted against it. If I'm not mistaken, he voted against NAFTA back in 1993. So he's, he's pretty been very consistent on being anti-trade yes that's true oh so that is the big news there we do have continued uh information Mm -hmm. coming out about the trade deal with china of course the full text of that document has finally been released and the industry has been pouring through it trying to get clues as to what me what we might be able to divine from the uh, agreement and the, the actual physical writing of the agreement. Our very own Ted Seifert here at Zayner was featured in a Reuters article yesterday talking about the the fact that we didn't have specific purchase contracts was disappointing. Uh, you know, we are going to face stiff competition from a big Brazilian crop, which is getting underway. They have already made large purchases of Brazilian soybeans, and it looks like that's going to continue. You know, China left market uh, conditions as a caveat in the agreement. So that is going to be uh, a source of uncertainty, even though we're now certain that we have this trade deal signed. We are certain, and you're right, Mike. There are continued, I guess, details of that report being trickled out, folks sifting through that information. One of the things that we didn't, we might have glanced or glossed over it yesterday during the podcast, but looking specifically at those trade barriers like tariffs that are still in place, the Trump administration, we're hearing some conflicting views about what exactly is going to happen with some of those tariffs that are in place. 
We have seen President Trump say that we're going to keep on quite a few of those tariffs to hold China accountable. And then we've heard kind of the opposite side of that, I believe. Peter Navarro or one of his economic advisors, maybe it was even Steve Mnuchin, I can't remember now where I read that, said that uh, we will take trade tariffs off the table. So we're not really sure yet exactly where those are going to be. It sounds like there's definitely going to be some sort of tariffs kept on the table, probably not to the extent that they are right now, but it doesn't sound like those are completely done yet. No, I, I mean, I think they're going to continue to be a uh, pudgel by which the administration can say, all right, you know, China, you're not fulfilling your end of the bargain. We're keeping them in place mm-hmm. or we're re-implementing these tariffs. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about how that might or might not be an issue for China, because China at that point can just back out of the agreement. Right. You know, they as part of the agreement, they don't get to put tariffs back in place, but they can just throw up their middle fingers and roll out. Yeah, and it it was a little concerning maybe for folks now going back and looking, you know, over the text of the details, also maybe some things that maybe uh Vice Premier Luhi said kind of off off media or kind of off uh off the attention there and out of the limelight said that perhaps the purchasing of US farm commodities would depend on quote market conditions. And so we don't know exactly what that means when he made that statement and on the flip side of that, though, I think one of the other concerns was, can we send out you know, $40 billion worth of products in a year? And according to an economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation, Veronica Nye, she put together kind of an analysis looking at the deal, and it does seem like it is achievable from an export standpoint. Yes. So I was talking with Dan Hussey here at Zayner, and we've had Dan on the podcast before, and he was doing some research into this very same thing. Because yesterday, you know, I raised my own concerns about whether or not we could hit $40 billion a year. And Dan looked into it, and realistically, if we go back to just the median levels for pork, beef, and chicken exports to China, um, we'll be able to hit that $40 billion target. Um, And his note to me was... uh, poultry could be 5 to $15 billion on its own, especially given that we know they need protein. Right. So uh, sounds like it's possible. Will it actually happen? Will we be able to enforce that? That's kind of still one of the gray areas, I think. It is. It is, Lillian. But I want to take the conversation away from China for a second, unless you've got other Chinese news. Okay, I'll let you take it. All right, let's talk ethanol for a hot second. We've got news coming out of Mexico. The Mexican Supreme Court ruled against a higher ethanol blend in that country. Three years ago, there was quite a bit of a stir here in America when Mexico said they were going to um, expand the blend rule in Mexico from 5.8% ethanol up to 10%, which would match the U.S. Now, they did exempt the three largest cities in Mexico, but the rest of the country was going to be required to go to 10% ethanol. Um, As soon as that was announced, uh, some folks took it to court, and uh, Pemex was one of the ones who took it to court, the the Mexican state-owned oil company, and the Supreme Court agreed with the oil companies. They said that by passing this rule the way they did, it was passed by Mexico's Energy Regulatory Commission, Uh, they say it violates their authority. So they're not saying that Mexico can't ever go to 10%. They're just saying the way that Mexico proposed going to a 10% ethanol blend is illegal, and they'll have to come back and find a different way to 
get to that 10% if the Mexican government still wants to get there. Now, there is still a lot of pressure to up the ethanol increase in Mexico, mainly because Mexico still uses a lot of MTBE, which we've talked about on this podcast. It's a chemical used in gasoline to oxygenate the gasoline. Basically, it, it adds octane, makes it perform better, and MTBE is mostly banned in the U.S. In fact, I believe it's a 100% ban in driving fuels uh, because it is a carcinogen, and it soaks into the you know, ground around underwater underground storage tanks, and it's just a pain in the neck. So Mexico's probably going to look to phase that out, and to do so, they will probably look at increasing their ethanol supplies, but it is, you know, kind of a... Uh, you know, kind of a slap in the face, because Mexico, to get 5% more ethanol, they don't have the, the refining facilities down there. They're going to be importing that ethanol from the U.S., which, you know, the ethanol industry, like dairy, could really use a win in 2020. Sounds like there were a lot of probablys and maybes in that, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, the crux is there's no E10 in Mexico for the foreseeable future. All right. Well, President Trump is going to be addressing the American Farm Bureau Federation this coming weekend, speaking there for the third year in a row, and this just came out. A lot of folks are expecting, including the American Farm Bureau President, Zippy Duvall, are expecting the Trump administration to release the new WOTUS rule, Waters of the U.S. rule, and a lot of people are speculating that they think perhaps President Trump will do this in front of the ag audience at American Farm Bureau Convention this weekend. Not saying that's going to happen for sure, but it does sound like that is something coming down the pipeline here very, very shortly. Interesting. So he will be speaking on Sunday, so that's yes. when we ought to be paying attention, you say? That's that's the speculation. That's the rumor right now. Now, Delaney, you're far more plugged into politics than I am. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this answer, but I don't. If they're going to make a proposal like that or make an announcement like that, do they write it up beforehand and release it? Or will Trump talk, announce it, and then they'll send out the information? How does that stuff usually go down? I believe it's usually embargoed until he announces it, but I would be willing to bet that he would announce it kind of moments of, and maybe we'd get something a couple moments before he went on to speak, but likely it would be kind of time of event. Gotcha. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yes, it does. All right. Well, Delaney, the only other piece of news I have was some news that was, it's, I guess, slightly bearish the grains, but not hugely. But that was at the signing of the trade agreement yesterday. We did see a spike in the U.S. dollar. Basically, this removed some risk of... Uh, financial uncertainty, economic uncertainty, and that bid the dollar higher. Ordinarily, this would be bearish the grain markets, and it was a contributing factor to the bearishness that we saw today in the grains. Delaney, I tell you what, should we, uh, do we have any more news, or or do you want to talk about uh, the markets? Well, I do want to talk about the markets, but I wanted to talk about just one other thing here, looking at the markets. And of course, MFP payment is largely based off of where the commodities sit, as well as what's going on with our trade situation. It's been speculated whether or not we will have a third round here of MFP payments. And according to some whispers on Capitol Hill, it sounds like there's going to be a big meeting with Secretary Purdue just ahead of their Ag Outlook Forum on February 19th, 
with some ag industry folks, including lobbyists, economists, and top USDA economist Robert Johansson, have been asked to brief Secretary Purdue on whether or not there should be another round of payments. So it sounds like that decision is going to come quite a bit later than we ever expected. All right. Well, that's frustrating for folks that are trying to put budgets together as they're meeting with lenders here during renewal season. But it is. Uncle Sam works at his own pace. That he does. Well, Melania, I tell you what, we were expecting to see the U.S. trade deal add maybe some wind at the back of the commodities markets. But today, the day after the signing, we did not see that happen. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. The industry identifies a cold start as any time the engine and its coolant are 30 Fahrenheit degrees or more below normal operating temperature. This is then broken down into a full cold start when the coolant is at ambient temperature, an intermediate restart, and then a hot restart. Since a diesel engine uses no spark plugs, combustion occurs from the heating of the air in the cylinder by the compression of the piston. During a full or intermediate cold start, this is insufficient to reach the necessary 350 Fahrenheit degrees for the fuel to auto-ignite. To combat this, a glow plug, intake air heater, or both are employed. Many misunderstand glow plugs. They are not used to heat the combustion chamber, but instead to create a hot spot for the fuel to encounter as the piston pushes the mixture toward it. Simply put, it is an ignition point that can quickly reach more than 1,000 Fahrenheit degrees. It is nothing more than a heating element. If your diesel is hard starting, check the glow plugs and related circuits. Often you will find the engine is firing on only one cylinder since the others have expired. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Oh, should we jump into it and talk about what happened in the grain markets today? Let's do it. All right, folks, it is not a pretty picture for you producers, for you end users. It's uh, kind of a blue light special out there, particularly in the corn market. Looking at corn, the March contract was down 12 cents on the day to finish at 375 and a half. May down 11 and a half cents, closed at 382 and a half. Soybeans down not nearly as severely as the corn market. March beans were down four and three quarter cents to finish at 924 even. May also down four and three quarters, closed at 937 and a quarter. Chicago wheat, long the here in the ags was down on the day. The March contract dropped eight cents at five sixty-five and a quarter. May down seven and three quarters to finish at five sixty-six and a quarter. Looking over at livestock, they were not spared the carnage today. February live cattle dropped forty-seven and a half cents at one twenty-six twelve fifty. April down a dollar seven and a half cents to finish at one twenty-six forty-two half. In feeder cattle, the March contract dropped thirty-five cents at one forty-four eighty-two and a half. April down 40 cents. Close the day at 147.80. Lean hogs, again, one of the markets you would expect to be buoyed by the signing of the trade deal with China. 
was not the case. February lean hogs down a dollar at 66.87 half. April down a dollar 20 to finish at 73.77.50. Looking over at the dairy market, we did see some mixed trade today. The January was weaker by one penny at 16.98. February, on the other hand, up 24 cents to close at 17.32. The lady wanted to tell us what we're talking about in today's interview. Well, Mike. I'm excited about this conversation. Uh, former sponsor of the podcast, John Latham of Latham High Tech Seeds, was actually at the signing of the U.S.-Chinese trade deal yesterday. So we're going to pick his brain and just hear about that momentous event. Well, as promised, we are very excited to be jo- joined today by John Latham of Latham High Tech Seeds. John, I know you just got back from Washington, D.C. It sounds like it's been a whirlwind 24 hours. Tell us how, first of all, how you got invited to travel to Washington, D.C. and be part of yesterday's momentous event. Yeah, it was. Uh, it has been a whirlwind. In the last week, I, um, I got an invite last Gosh, was it last Thursday, I believe, which was uh, kind of short notice. But certainly when you get an invite from the White House, uh, you want to take advantage of it. And fortunately, uh, I've been uh, involved in the American Sea Trade Association. I've been on the board for six years and now uh, I'm the, the uh, vice chair of the board of American Sea Trade. So I was really fortunate to be able to represent the American Sea Trade Association yesterday at the White House. And yeah, it was a really a, a neat event. And I've never I've been to the White House, but not not for an event like that. So it was uh, really exciting and and hopefully historic for a lot of reasons. Well, that's the thing, John. I mean, I watched it on TV and I've got a feeling I just saw a tiny fraction of what will happen yesterday. Walk us through the day from your participation as a uh, as a viewer. Yeah, it was uh, it was neat. So it was uh, about. uh, Let's see, 10.30 Eastern Time, 9.30 Central Time, we got in line and uh, waited in uh, about 15 minutes. And then the, the Secret Service got us into the White House really uh, quickly. We came in from the east side. And then we were, there's the giant kind of lobby there. Uh, that's, they don't call it the lobby, but the giant area where we waited for about 15 minutes. And it was probably 11 o'clock Central Time. They let us go into the East Room. And so then I was fortunate. Um, I got to got some Iowa connections, fortunate to have met our governor before and, and got a picture with her and uh, Senator Joni Ernst and then Ambassador Branstead, all from Iowa. So I was really excited about that. And then I, I kind of followed them in and was fortunate to be able to sit behind the governor. There was an open seat that she had reserved seats and I was fortunate to sit behind her. So I, I had third row center aisle seat and and uh so it was really exciting and and uh when they play hail to the chief and and get to stand and listen to all the pageantry and the, seeing all the press there and it was you know for a small town kid from the midwest it's pretty pretty neat to be able to, to be there and experience it all yeah, I mean, you watch it on TV or even just watching clips, kind of recapping it. it there was a lot of pomp and circumstance, it seemed like, uh, at yesterday's event. It was. You know, it's it's really interesting, you know, all the press there. And then the president, uh, interesting to watch. You know, some of it he's got scripted, but he always goes off script. And that's just the way he, he's going to be every time he speaks. And so it was interesting. And, and the, the I was sat beside a, a lady who is in the leadership at Ford Motor Company. 
And she ended up getting in, standing up and being introduced. And she had no idea she was going to be introduced. And the president just told stories about every everybody that that was uh, there. And so it was uh, it was pretty neat. To, it was it was formalized, but yet it was kind of informal at the same time. And and uh, and then and then once we got to the signing, it was really neat to to see the there was nine different uh, uh, of the leadership, including the vice premier of China, was there. And uh, got to see the the signing on the side, and and uh, so many senators and and representatives were there. Uh, so it was just really neat to to see history, and and I uh, got to put our headset on and listen to when the Chinese spoke. So that was something we don't do in uh, in rural Iowa very often either. But but no, it was really really great experience, and and uh, one I'll never forget. Now, John, from the perspective of phase one of the U.S. Uh, trade deal, of course, you are Mr. Latham Seeds. You're there on the American Seed Trade Association. We haven't talked a lot about what this deal means for seed sales. What is it you're looking forward to as this deal gets implemented? Yeah, there's there's several things. I mean, first of all, I think it's going to be really good for our customers, especially our soybean customers. Soybeans is what we export to China the most. And and what the, the Chinese have committed to, you know, should, can only help the price of uh, soybeans, which we all, everybody in, in agriculture could use a commodity lift of uh, especially a dollar or two. And I, I don't know if that'll happen, but it certainly can't, can't hurt things. And then as far as on the seed side of things, there's a couple different things. The intellectual property, there's a lot of really strong provisions in there that the, the Chinese need to uh, follow up on. And so if, if that happens, I think it could really be a good thing for the seed industry, which eventually will be good for our, our customers as well. And then one of the bigger things is the, the, the process for approvals of new biotech traits. And if anybody in farming knows, there's been uh, delays in getting some of these new technologies approved. And so uh, having a more set process, they're talking about a, a 24-month process kind of from beginning to end, which would be better. We've had some of these uh, products be eight to 10 years before they get approved. And it makes it really hard for any seed company to invest when you don't know if you're ever going to see a return on with that, with that kind of a process. So I think this will make the process better. And I think it'll be better for definitely better for our customers as well as seed companies. So I'm really excited about phase one and hopefully phase two is even better. Yeah, and hopefully phase two isn't quite, doesn't take quite as long to get negotiated. But John, either before or especially after the signing, did you have a chance to talk to, you mentioned you were close to Senator Ernst as well as Iowa's governor. Did you have a chance to talk to any of those legislators and or just did they offer any sort of briefing afterwards since there were so many you know, representatives of the agriculture industry, the automotive industry, about what this trade deal would mean immediately for you guys. Yeah, and that was, a, you know, going into it, we didn't know all, you know, and we still don't know all everything about the, the agreement, but we know a lot more than we did going in. So it was kind of released right afterwards. So I uh, I did get to talk to, I got to actually meet the, the governor of South Dakota as well. And between her and Governor Reynolds from Iowa, they're both very excited about what this can do for agriculture. And then I did have a meeting yesterday afternoon with Senator Ernst and talk a little more in detail. She had just kind of seen some of the more details of the and, and you know, really excited if, if 
if we if if everybody holds up their ends of the bargain, I think this could really be a, a great first step for agriculture. And, and we all need it in agriculture. We need a boost. It's been a been a rough several years here with commodity prices the way they've been. Absolutely. John, as we've got phase one now done and signed, as you look ahead, both as a uh, seed producer and as just a man in the industry, what are you looking forward to in phase two with the intellectual property stuff taken care of and now ag purchases back on the table by China? Is agriculture out of the woods or are there more things we should be concerned about as we continue to discuss uh, negotiations with China? Yeah, I think, you know, if we can if if we can continue with these the commitments they've made and build on them, if if China can hold, you know, on intellectual property stuff cuz the last thing I've heard of different seed companies go to China and then uh things get counterfeited basically their seed products do and if a company can't, you know, if they they're not going to invest in a in a in a uh Company or in a uh, country, if they can't get an investment out of it, so I think phase two can only strengthen what we've started with phase one, and certainly if the commitments can grow, it could be a great thing for for agriculture. But but I, I have a feeling it's probably going to be next year before next phase two would would be agreed to. But boy, if it could happen, I think it could really be a a great time for for all of us in agriculture. Absolutely. Well, it's certainly given us something to uh, hang our hats on here, at least for the foreseeable future. John, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing about your experience. Yeah, anytime. Love talking to you guys. And, and uh, yeah, appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, big thank you there to John Latham. Really exciting that he got to represent agriculture, be present at that momentous event, if you will. Even if we're still unclear on what those trade details are, it's still a big deal that somebody from, uh, you know, Northwest Iowa was able to be at that representing agriculture. Yeah, Delaney and Latham Seeds, of course, longtime friends of the Ag News Daily Podcast. It is very cool to catch up with John again. Listeners, if you want to get caught up on any of the other things we have talked about in previous episodes, visit our website. Go to agnewsdaily.com. That will take you to our new home. Well, not a new home anymore, our established home over at the Global Ag Network. You can listen to our past episodes, plus get connected with other podcasts who are on the network as well. And you can always visit us on social media. Go to Ag News or at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, The Works. We're there, and we want to hear from you. Tell us what's going on in your part of the world. What do we need to be covering? With that, Delaney Howe, should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. (laughs) 